Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, today's episode is going to be with Mary Gladstone Highland, and we're going to be talking about moving from reactive to proactive. So let me share just a little bit about Mary. She started Spark Consulting 16 years ago and helps nonprofit leaders stop putting out fires and spark new ideas instead. And I love that. That's literally one of the mottos of the consulting practice, Spark Consulting. And through her consulting, she offers fundraising planning, change management, board development, and more. She is the author, if you know her name, it might be because she's the author of the very popular The Complete Workbook for Grant Writing. She also is a CFRE, and I don't want to get in trouble by just using a bunch of jargon, certified fundraising executive with degrees from Syracuse University and Western Michigan University as well. Hey, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to have this conversation with you. I look forward to diving into this issue that I think is really important for nonprofit leaders. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. And I know that you have written about getting close to an issue in order to understand its causes. And I think you've even written something about a very particular story where where you, in a compelling way, got close to an issue. Full disclosure... I started Spark Group in 2018. I've been working in the nonprofit sector for 16 years. Um, and a lot of that early work was with individuals who were living in poverty. And so I learned pretty early on that in order to do anything about the giant issue of poverty, you have to know what it's like to live in poverty. You have to build relationships. And actually, I was just saying this to somebody else earlier this morning that the more I advance in my career, the more I'm convinced that relationships are the key to everything. So early in my career, uh, we launched this program that was aimed at reducing poverty in our community. And we knew that if we wanted to do that, we couldn't just say, here's, let's get together a group of people who've never experienced poverty and come up with all these solutions. And so we used a curriculum called Getting Ahead in a Just Getting By World. And the idea is that Individuals who are living in poverty are the experts about what it's like to live in poverty. And so we paid individuals, they came, they told us what it was like to live in poverty, they told us about uh, solutions that they think would be helpful in order to uh, move their family into more sustainability. And one of the first exercises that we did in that program was we asked these individuals to describe to us what the cycle of poverty was like. And so on the first night, this woman stood up and she said, for me, poverty is like being on a traffic circle. You can't get out. There's Need Street and there's Want Street and there's Future Street. You can see it, but you're just stuck spinning around this traffic circle or roundabout. We had a big joke about whether or not it was a traffic circle or a roundabout. But she said, and that's the rub. It's like you can't ever figure out, figure out how to get off. After doing that program, I started to see how what we taught in that program was happening on an organizational level for nonprofits and how nonprofits get stuck in this same cycle of reactivity and how they can see where they want to go. You know, if you talk to every single nonprofit leader, they're going to say, I've got these goals. I know what I want to achieve. I just have limited capacity and I can't get there. 
And so that became one of the formative viewpoints that I have as a consultant when I work with organizations, helping them move out of this cycle of reactivity to a place where they can more proactively achieve the goals and the aims and the impacts that they want for their organization. Part of what I like so much about what you just shared is that that's true for that person who is living in poverty. It's also true for a lot of the leaders of nonprofit organizations. They kind of feel like they're on this roundabout or traffic circle, depending on how you want to think about it. And it might be, I can, you know, the exits might not be I want and I need. It might be like, I can make an impact. I have all these demands. And, you know, how do I actually move this forward? And so it's interesting because I could see a lot of us from all walks of life kind of feeling like we're stuck there in the traffic circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about what a nonprofit leader has to deal with on their daily basis, right? So I'm an executive director. I'm going into work. I'm thinking about my staff. I'm thinking about my volunteers, about fundraising, about how I'm going to communicate our story, external connections and collaborations. And all of that is in just my day-to-day realm of what I have to do. The example that I like to use when we're thinking about a reactive environment is imagine you're that leader who's got all of those responsibilities on a daily basis. You're going into work today and you've got a fundraising campaign meeting, you've got an audit review, and you've got a program staff meeting. And meanwhile, you have this summer program that's going on and you're feeding 275 kids a day. And it happens at 11.45 that boom, the people who were supposed to bring your lunch didn't bring your lunch. Now, all of a sudden, you can't think about your audit review, you can't think about your fundraising campaign, you can't think about your program staff uh, meeting or anything else that was in that realm of responsibility that you had for the day because you're focused on how do I feed 275 hungry kids? And that's the environment that a lot of nonprofit leaders, no matter the size of the organization, No matter how experienced you are as a nonprofit leader, this doesn't say anything about you negatively as a nonprofit leader if you're operating in this kind of environment. But that's the situation that people experience. And it's like drowning. It's like you can't ever get your head above water. If you compare that to, you know, taking some time before the summer program starts and identifying about two or three times a summer, our lunches don't show up. What can we do? in that situation. Maybe we can partner with a local restaurant to get sandwiches, or here in Michigan, it would be hot and ready pizzas from Little Caesars real quick. But having a plan in place so that when that happens, your staff person says, oh my gosh, lunch didn't show up. And you can say, I got a plan for that. Get some some lunches for these kids. And then you're still able to get back to your fundraising campaign meeting, your program staff meeting, your audit review. Um, And so that's the difference between a reactive environment and a proactive environment that nonprofit leaders are are often struggling with. Mm. So I can hear maybe some of our listeners thinking, that sounds great, but there's a thousand things that could throw off my day. How do I create a thousand contingency plans? Absolutely. One of the things that when nonprofit leaders, when I'm talking about this, I like get eye rolls and they're like, yeah, but you don't really understand my environment. My environment is way too crazy. Like I can't ever get to the bottom of my to-do list. And sure, you know, how could I anticipate everything? So a couple of things that I tell people is 
One, take a step back. So think about, is this, is this moment, is it an emergency? Is it 275 kids need to be fed? Maybe you do need to drop everything and go feed those 275 kids. Or is it something that can wait an hour? You know, when I'm talking to nonprofit leaders, I say, get in the practice of setting aside an hour a week, a half an hour, if you feel like that causes you heart palpitations and guard that half hour, you know, with your life. And I tell leaders, look, I promise you, those emergencies will be waiting for you at the end of the half hour. They're not going away. But give yourself that time to be able to think proactively on a regular basis so that you have the brain space to anticipate what might happen in your organization. No, you're not going to catch everything. Of course not. But you'll catch more than you think. Right. I, I'll share it with you. You know, part of what I do, I often do interim executive director engagements. And when I do them, I have multiple signs that I can put on my door. Obviously, one is I'm in a meeting. But another one is I'm doing deep think work. And literally, it's just a picture of me reading a book. And it says, I'm doing deep think work. Unless it's on fire, please come back later. And I'm amazed at how effective that is. People will actually be very respectful of like, okay, yeah, you know, th this is something that can wait an hour or three. The other thing as you were speaking that I thought about is some really good advice that one of my professional mentors shared with me. And, and her phrase was delegate and graduate. And so I would also think, yeah, yeah, you know, as a chief executive, I can't think through the thousand little things that could destroy my day. But I can say to staff, hey, you know, you've got kind of like a slush fund budget of up to whatever, $500 this month to deal with crises. So if it costs less than $250, you can solve it on your own. So if you need to go order pizza, go order pizza. Right. Absolutely. Delegate, you know, determine whether or not you need to take that time away. Because what I'm imagining is you put that awesome sign, which I love that practice, by the way, because it models to your staff, really, I take this time seriously. But I can just imagine everybody going like, hey, um, I have this thing that's on fire. And you're like, that's not really on fire. So modeling that behavior to your staff is important. And then also modeling to them thinking through, okay, is it something that we have to address right now? Like, is the roof on fire? If it's not, uh, Great. When can we get to it? If it is, who else can do it so that we don't get constantly derailed? Who else is on our team that we can call in to help us solve this issue? Absolutely. I, yeah. I often think of it like if, as the chief executive, if we're, if we have to be the traffic cop, if all things have to come through us, it's kind of like if you live in a city, if all traffic has to go through one intersection, there's going to be a traffic jam and that's going to be one frustrated traffic cop. But if you think about it, and nonprofit leaders, they're superheroes and they want to do everything and they want to help everybody and they want to have their fingers on everything. And that's hard. It's a lot of responsibility. You know, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. It also limits your organization because it limits your team members from being able to take on roles and responsibilities that maybe they would feel proud about, you know, if they had the chance. And I would say to a T every single time that somebody has told me, but if I don't do it, no one will do it. Somebody will do it, you know, or heaven forbid, it won't get done. And maybe it didn't need to get done. And maybe they'll do it and they won't do it like you. And that's okay also, you know? 
Yeah, I'll share with you what you just said made me think about something. This clearly is recency bias, but I just finished reading a book called 4,000 Weeks. Um, and the kicker of the book is if we live to be about 80 years old, we only have 4,000 weeks. And one of the things that they recommend that we do is when we're creating our task list, we also have a list of things that aren't going to get done. Nice. And we just put them on there and we're like, okay, not going to do that. It's naming it. Yeah. And, you know, for me, if I were to write that down, it would say, and I, I have made the decision to not do it. So I don't have to worry about that today. Right. Exactly. So let me ask you, like, what advice do you have for those of us that are nonprofit leaders about how we do start to take that step back? Because it can be scary, you know, like, especially if we started when the organization was smaller and it's grown and there are things we've always done. And we're like, but either no one else can do it or we think to ourselves, no one can do it better than me. So help us let go of that. So proactive behaviors that I think are really helpful for leaders. One, set aside that hour every week for you personally as a leader. I do this um, full disclosure. I don't get to it every single week, even though I'm here preaching that people should do it. There are some weeks where I can't, but I have a Google document. I've put it in my calendar so that I get the reminder. This is the time that you are supposed to take off to do this work. And in my Google document, I have these uh, tables. And one of the questions that I ask myself is to synthesize the past week. You know, what happened? How did it go? Um, then I have a time where I'm honoring, you know, what do I think went really well? Or, you know, what do I want to lay aside? And then the last question or space that I give myself to think through is what plans do I want to make for the upcoming week or the upcoming quarter or the upcoming year? So I think getting into the practice, and that doesn't have to be your uh, tool, you know, whatever works for you, whether it's going to a coffee shop, you maybe you have to actually get away in order to get that time. Maybe you don't like the rigidity of thinking through the same boring questions every week and you want to, you know, be more iterative or I don't know, whatever your process is. So set aside that time for yourself. Then also make sure that you're set setting aside that time for your team. So whether it's one hour a week, you know, whatever works for your schedule. And this is, I mean, it's sort of a staff meeting, but not giving your team that time to synthesize the work as well. And you could use a simple tool, a SWOT analysis or a SOAR analysis, you know, whatever works for your team. I also think that adopting a culture of evaluation helps anytime, you know, an event finishes or a campaign finishes, just sit down with your team and say, hey, what worked well? What do we want to implement in the future? What do we want to get rid of? You know, what stunk? <laughs> And we don't want to waste our time doing that again. And then the last thing I would say is create a planning calendar. So there's a number of different tools that we can use to help us plan throughout the year, but they will not happen if we don't set aside that time. Um, and I hear this from nonprofit leaders all the time. They say, yeah, you know, I want to be proactive, but there's never, I can't ever take time out to create that plan or to do that process. I've got all these other work responsibilities. And you will have plenty of things on fire trying to, you know, pull your time away. But if you set that time intentionally as the year begins, then your team knows, okay, this is the hour, this is the week, maybe, if it's a big fundraising plan or strategic plan that I can devote to this work. And so I think we often, with very good intentions, set that time aside. 
And then that time comes, and one of two things happens. Either there's an emergency, and we're like, I just can't do it. Or we get distracted by something that, for whatever reason, just gives us more more of an immediate gratification, whether that's, oh, I need to check email, or, oh, I just remembered I've got to go do this post for our organization on social media. How do we deal with both of those situations? I mean, I think that there's lots of things that can get in the way. Of course, you know, those daily fires will happen. And and you have to use, you have to have some kind of measure of understanding, is this something that really should pull my time and attention away or is it not? Because there will be times where you, you can't just sit and do your work thinking or your, you know, your time away if, I don't know, something's collapsing, right? You have to go address that. I'm not saying that you should sit in a corner and not pay attention to what's going on in your organization at all. But have some kind of matrix for, you know, what am I going to do? Have people in place while you're doing that work. This is the person who's going to take the calls, you know, like you said, delegating. It is, it's difficult to take the time, but also adopting a culture of slowing down. You know, we as nonprofit leaders, we want, as I mentioned, to address everything, to solve every problem. And so, sitting back is really hard. And some of this stuff is not easy. You know, like big culture changes in your organization. If you've got a team that's like, we roll up our sleeves, we send emails at 1am, you know, we never turn off. It's going to be hard to say, let's slow down. You know, that's not going to feel great. But adopting that kind of culture of sitting down, of slowing down your team, can help to address some of that, you know, need to pull time away. And then, I don't know, do whatever you need to do to make that time fun. Because I get it, you know, if if I have to do something boring, but there's something on fire, I'm going to pay attention to the big shiny fire. So I don't read a book. Like you mentioned, find a resource that you think is really interesting. Find a TED talk. You know, maybe you're an external processor. Find somebody that you can process with and another executive director that uh, is a colleague of yours. Try to do something. Give yourself a reward. If I do this work, I get to buy a coffee. I don't know. (laughs) Do something in order to make it appealing as well. You had mentioned, hey, you might be a part of a team where people are sending emails or Slack messages at 1 a.m. And it is kind of, yeah, we're, we're always grinding. We're all about the grind. And obviously, I know a lot of that tone is set at the top. So for our, our friends who are listening who are executive directors, okay, they can certainly change that tone. But what advice do you have for those people who are reporting to an executive director who is sending the 1 a.m. Slack messages? I would, <laughs> I would advise you to not read them to turn off your Slack notifications, to delete the app at night if you have to, and to set a really strong boundary because it's not saying you won't get back to that question or that, you know, but what possible result could you do at one o'clock in the morning that would be meaningful for your organization that you couldn't do at 9 a.m. the next morning? So I would say, You don't have to be aggressive about it. I mean, there might be moments where you need to say to your superior, like, please stop emailing me, but set those boundaries for yourself. Those emails can come in and I'm not going to pay attention to them until tomorrow morning. I have to do that for myself in sending the emails out. I work a lot 
lot of times at night, you know, I got kids. So I work until school is out and then I'm a mom until bedtime. And then I work in the evenings, but schedule send is my friend. And so, you know, lots of people that I work with are used to getting 8 a.m. emails from me on the dot because I've schedule sent everything in the evening. Um, so that's a message for the executive director. Schedule send can be your friend too. Um, but also for those individuals who you're not the head of the organization, really it's hard, but try to set those boundaries for yourself about when you're going to read and respond to those messages. And what does that conversation with your boss sound like? The, hey, I'm not responding to emails after. Like, what does that conversation sound like? I think that if any leader hasn't heard these kind of conversations over the past three years, they've been living under a rock. Mm-hmm. Staff members don't want to have that kind of hustle culture expectation anymore. We have just been through something that's been traumatic for leaders and for staff members, and we need to set greater boundaries on our work and on what we'll respond to and on our own mental health. And so I think that if you went to your leader and you said, you know, hey, it's really helpful for me to focus on work when I'm working and my home life when I'm at home. And so I'm absolutely going to get to every email that you send me. And you can send it at 1 a.m., but I'm going to respond in the morning when I'm working. That way I can be the best employee for you. Because to be honest, if I send you a response at 1 a.m., it's not going to be that well thought out anyways. So I'm going to respond in the morning. Is that okay with you? Some leaders are going to say no. And then you have to think about whether that's okay with you. (laughs) Yeah. You know? (laughs) So I'm smiling and laughing because I agree with you 100%. Like some leaders are going to go, no, that's not okay. I expect an answer by at least 6 a.m. or whatever. And that probably tells you a lot about the person and you need to make a decision. Is this someone you want to work for? Literally, I'm, I'm in full alignment with you. Yeah. When I used to be in job transitions and interviewing at places, one of the questions I would ask is, you know, what days do people take off? because some organizations would work on the weekends or whatever. And if the response was, what's a weekend? I knew that that probably wasn't a great organization for me. You know, in that brief, easy question, the response is, we don't ever take time off. Then that says something, you know? We need our time off. I mean, we're doing incredibly hard work with incredibly low resources. We need to be able to rest and take time off and set boundaries around when we work and when we don't work in our our own mental health. When we are having a conversation with a prospective employer, how do we push on those questions a little bit? Because I know oftentimes, you know, you might ask the hiring manager, the executive director, what's the workplace culture like? And, you know, they paint a picture of what they think the workplace culture should be like, or maybe they're really disconnected and they think that's the workplace culture, but they don't, for example, say, oh, yeah, we believe in the grind. I, I've always felt if you're not at your desk at 630 at night, you aren't working hard enough. So, so how do you... How do you really push in and explore that when you're looking for work? I mean, I would ask follow-up questions when people said, ha, what's a weekend? I would say, well, you know, I know that you work on Sundays and Saturdays. When do people take the time off? Do they have flex time? Do they take it off on Mondays? Do they take it off on Fridays? I've been somebody that's been accused not once, but probably many times in my life to have a certain amount of candor. (laughs) So I'm usually somebody who kind of just says it like it is. I hope that that's with kindness. I try to, you know, also be a kind person, but I would, I would push back. You know, I would say, okay, well, um, 
if this is a cultural expectation here at this organization, then how do we get rest? Are there other benefits for employees to use? Or do we have flex time somewhere? You know, I would continue to ask more questions, but I would also be doing that internal work. I mean, I'm judicious when I'm thinking about who I want to work with and what company I want to work for. If I'm working for a company, that's not my role anymore, but you know, what nonprofit organization, because you're going to spend so much time there. You have to feel comfortable. And for some people, they want to work you know, those crazy hours and do all that. I don't. <laughs> right. You know? I, but Yeah. But how do you really dig in, for example, when they say, oh, we're very respectful of weekends or we're very respectful of evenings and weekends, but you know this job is going to require some evening or weekend work. Like, like, how do you push back on that? And as you would say, candid, but also kind way. I would just take a look at if I'm expected to work on a Saturday or if I'm expected to work on a Sunday, then when do I get that time off, you know? And I would just make sure that there's some kind of balance there so that the expectation isn't you just work all the time, you know? I heard somebody talk about um, thirds in your day. So, you know, there's the morning and then there's the afternoon and then there's the evening and that you know, we can be expected to work two of those thirds. And so if I'm expected to be there in the morning and in the evening, maybe I get the afternoon off. Or if I'm expected to work in the morning and the afternoon, then I get the evening off. Um, and so that's something that I might say to a leader, you know, I might say, oh, okay, so I see that we work on the weekends. I see that there's not really any expectation that we take a Monday off or, but what do you think about this idea? I've heard this, is that something that you'd be open to in your organization? And in that way, I'd be saying, here's a solution, you know, and kind of an idea, are you open to it? And if the response is, no, you'd have to run it by me. I mean, then I really have to do a lot of thinking about whether or not that's the right place. That's fair. That's really fair. And something about what you just said made me harken back to um, my the early part of my career almost 30 years ago. Like a, like a lot of nonprofit employers back then, and unfortunately today too, I was treated as an exempt employee, even though as a case manager, I probably really would have been a non-exempt employee under the law. But so I was treated as an exempt employee. And I would often work literally like 10, 12-hour days. And so I was working 55, 60 hours a week. And I'm in my early 20s, and I kept going to my doctor. And I'm like, something's wrong with me. Do I have cancer? What's wrong with me? And after like my sixth or seventh time in a year, my doctor's like, um, how much do you work? And he was such a gentle, kind doctor. And he's like, nothing's wrong with you. You're, you're human and you can't work that much time. And I was really fortunate because I had, I had a supervisor I could actually go and talk to about those things. And I had a conversation with her. And what we ultimately decided on, and I will share with you, it ended up working in such a beautiful way for me. What we ultimately decided on is that my work pace is 10 to 12 hour days, but then I should only take, I should only work four days a week. And so I got every Wednesday off. And I remember how glorious that was for, you know, for the couple more years I was there. Like literally on Wednesday, I'd go to the park. By the way, this, I know this is, makes me sound really old because it's pre-internet. I go to the park with a newspaper and read the newspaper on a park bench. <laughs> but, but it was really amazing because sometimes I was only working, you know, 44 to 48 hours a week as opposed to 60. Yeah, but if that leader and you would have said, okay, we've got to be really stringent and you can only come in se seven or eight hours a day and that's got to be it and we're going to, you know, hang over your shoulder and we're going to make sure you're only here eight hours a day, that wouldn't have fit for you. But you found a creative solution that allowed you to get some 
healthy benefit from a walk in the park and the reading of the newsletter or the newspaper. That's, you know, where we are now. Um, the other thing that I like about what you said is that it reminds me of that is a symptom of a reactive environment. So I want to be really clear. If if you're in a reactive environment, I do not think it's because you chose it and you need it and like you want to be in a reactive environment. I just think that when you're in these, when you're on that roundabout and you can't get off, you can't think about what that reactive environment is doing. And so you have a lot of nonprofit leaders who might say, yeah, you know, we're going to have you work. It's going to be 12 hour days. You're, you know, that's the kind of employee that you are. And we're not going to think twice about that. And you missed the opportunity to think like, are there laws about this that mean that Mm -hmm. we probably shouldn't do this? And and I I love how you brought that back to being proactive versus reactive. I really like that. And Mary, we should probably move over to the off the map question. And I've got a good one for you because we've also talked some about boundaries and, and life work and really taking care of ourselves. So what is your creative outlet? So I am a wonderfully mediocre painter. (laughs) I love art. I'm not an artist. I'm not very good. But my art hangs all over the house. Because for me, turning on the fire, putting on music, and creating something with my hands in uh, a moment where so much of my life is remote and it's in Google Docs and it's, you know, stagnant, just really helps me to ground myself. Um, And I really like art books and um, ways to incorporate writing and art as well. And anything that I can involve my kids in is also another uh, way that I love to be creative. Yeah, I love those moments. That's awesome. Uh, Is there a website where we can check out your paintings? No. Okay. Um, and listeners, you, you, you can't see Mary's face, but she's smiling from ear to ear when she says no. So I, so I have one other question then. Would you maybe be willing to take a photograph of the painting in your house that you like the most that you've done? And we'll put that in the show notes. And that way listeners can go and actually see a work of art that you've done. Because I know whenever I, whenever I hear someone's an artist, I always want to see their work. I'd be absolutely willing to do that. I, you know, I don't create art for anyone, but I'm happy to share it with you and your listeners. I create art because I like the activity of creating it. And so I'm not, I'm not the type of person that wants to make money off of it. I just want to be a part of the process. Um, So yeah, I'll take a picture of something that I did recently and give it to you. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing with our listeners ways that they can really start to be more proactive and less reactive. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for involving me in this conversation. All right, friends, if you want to reach out to Mary Gladstone Highland, here's what you can do. Go to sparkgroupconsulting.com. And while you were there, there's a handful of things I want to make sure you check out. The first is She's soon going to be releasing a proactivity workbook, and she has a lot of other resources as well. And the best way to get those resources is to subscribe to her newsletter because that's how she sends them out. Additionally, 
This is going to air in January of 2023, and she is also going to be having some dates for 2023 webinars on fundraising and strategy. So if you are looking for a good webinar, and again, you've already heard Mary, you know she's going to be coming from the place of, hey, let's be proactive and not reactive. So if you want to kick 2023 off right, make sure you go to the website and register for a webinar. And finally, you can also find her on LinkedIn. Those URLs are always kind of long, so we're going to put that in the show notes as well. And my friends, if today met your needs, if you thought, yeah, I, I really needed to hear this conversation about being proactive, and also at some level, you know, this conversation around how my own boundaries professionally enabled me to, to be proactive, there are two other episodes that you will really get a lot from. The first is episode 187, Coaching for Nonprofit Leaders with Deb Stallings. We spent a good little bit of time when we were talking to Deb about boundaries that help you achieve more. And the second is episode 155, Moving from Strategy to Results with Leslie Mackerel. And finally, listeners, I always, always want to ask If you have not already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It is easy to do. Just pick up your phone and you can hit rate and review. And that, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers make me say it, but I'm running short on time, so I'm not going to be as corny as I normally am. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If that's what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional and get the advice you need.